Hello, welcome to episode 50 of Herpetological Highlights. I'm Tom Major and co-hosting with me is Ben Marshall, as always. What do you call a 50? Is it a bicentennial? Is that 200 years? Uh... <laughs> what a stupid thing to start the podcast with. Hmm. Well, I mean, by that logic, a bi-weekly uh, segment would happen twice a week but isn't which we know just isn't that's that's just ridiculous to think about it that way so i but, but isn't that the main problem must be 200 years that's, <laughs> that's the only way yeah but isn't that the main <laughs> problem just... with the term bi-week is that it could either mean every other week or it could mean twice a week and that's why it's it's one of the many problems yeah you're right <laughs> one of a catalogue of issues with the term but really it should mean twice a week like bicycle Two wheels. A bicycle doesn't mean you've got two bicycles. It means you got. Oh no! But then there's no. It would mean frame of reference. <laughs> the cy- A cycle makes no sense. Yeah, it would mean you had a wheel on every other bike. Yeah, so a bicycle would be a unicycle. It would just be one unicycle, and then the frame of a bike sat next to it on the floor. I. I think we should just move on. <laughs> yeah, okay. Um, <laughs> either way, though, it's a nice milestone, 50 episodes. I'm really happy that we've reached it. And I, yeah. I think that um, it's fitting that we're talking about toads. Because there's nothing that says the number 50 like a toad. No. And I think toads are kind of the main vein of a theme that's been running through the podcast since its inception, um, mainly because of your infatuation with them. And so... For us to land on 50 and be hitting up toads once again is poetic in a way. I, I think it's perfect. Hmm. And what's nice about it is it wasn't particularly planned. It just sort of happened that way. And therefore it's just fate and that's the way toads work and we should all just be very grateful that toads exist and we share the world with them. You lobby for a toad episode virtually every episode, so I struggle to believe this is a coincidence. <laughs> yeah, but the point is that this point, all my lobbying's paid off. <laughs> um, it only took 50, 50... No, it didn't even take 50 episodes. We've done toad done episodes toads before. toads like 10 times. Every fifth episode's about toads. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, okay, anyway, should we get into the first paper? Well, broadly speaking, before we get into it, we're talking about toad, well, not just toads, amphibians and how um, changes to their environment brought about by humans can influence um, influence them. Yeah, them. Where they are, what they do, what they look like. How they feel. I suppose. Possibly how they feel, although I don't think that's particularly well quantified in either of the papers. (laughs) No. But um, yeah, they they're two papers looking at toads, and then we'll round off with them um, a new species as per. So yeah, first paper is Caraca, Fisher, Owlpol, Sheridan, and Pooh, 2018 signals of forest degradation in the demography of common Asian amphibians, published in Peer J. Mm. I do like this paper. I I really enjoyed it. Yeah, it's good. It's uh. At first glance, it's like, whoa, okay. Every time, anytime there's like three experiments in one paper, you're like, oh, okay, this is going to be hard going. Got to think about more, more, yeah. than, more than one thing at a time. Yeah, it's like juggling. And they've got like, what, five species in here too? Yeah, and if you can count, if you count the flies, more still. 
Yeah. <laughs> and they actually mention different species of trees. So, I mean, really, this rabbit hole just keeps on going. Yeah, there is. It's really. a paper that keeps on giving. Yeah. So, the prerequisite for this paper is that lots and lots of time, money, and focus is given to species we know to be endangered or we understand are struggling. So, you know, endangered species generally are the focus of lots of conservationists' time. But common species... Which- Makes sense, because you've got to prioritise, right? For you don't sure. have money to save everything, so you've got to pick the ones that need the most help. Oh, for sure, yeah. First, because they're the closest to going extinct first. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, okay. But, meanwhile, while all this money and focus is going on species we know are rare, common species are kind of not given much attention. They're common, right? So who cares? We don't need to keep an eye on them. They're getting along just fine, it would seem. Yeah, the classic... The classic uh two words to lower the importance of a species widespread common yeah 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 and that's pretty much where this paper comes in so rather than just counting the number of animals in this case amphibians or just assuming because they're present they're fine they actually examine some key elements of amphibian lifestyles and how healthy individuals actually are as a means of finding out how well they're doing as a species so rather than just thinking Mm. oh they're there you know there's lots of them, they're actually looking at how well the individuals are which are in any given area. Um, yeah, and it's, it's nice to you you're looking a little bit more at uh, individual fitness or something like this because it might give you an idea of trends that are ongoing that haven't quite had an impact on the demographics yet or population numbers yet. So maybe they're, okay, they're still widespread, okay, they're still common, but it's beginning to look like they're in a little bit of trouble it's just yet to catch up with those numbers yeah so it's a little bit of an early warning system as well i think yeah and so they were looking at a bunch of different things in a bunch of different species and basically comparing them across habitat types so they had um secondary like intact secondary forests so like the best you can get not original growth forest because it's all gone mostly but good <laughs> it's it's hard it's hard to find yeah, yeah. but like old yeah. growth secondary forest which has come back and has big old trees and then they had uh, disturbed secondary forest and then they had agricultural land as their three kind of categories now there is a precedent mm. in the literature for animals doing or faring less well as individuals in different habitat types so the lead author of this paper is dr nancy Carricker, and she and another author studied amphibians in a group of um, different woodlands or different timberlands in California and they were looking at salamander abundances and while the abundances were similar in forests which had been thinned and hadn't been thinned so those with more or less trees relative to their size the body condition of common species was actually lower in thinned forests so although they had the same amount of salamanders they weren't as healthy Um, and that was because of the more intensive management in those areas. So if you'd just simply counted the salamanders, you, you, the story would have been, oh, the salamanders are doing fine in the thin forests, crack on. <laughs> but in actual fact, the reality was that those salamanders that were there were less vigorous and healthy than their less managed counterparts. Mm. So that's kind of like setting the scene of this paper and obviously uh, same author coming across and doing some stuff in Southeast Asia. Yeah, this time, where are they set up? They're set up in Thailand and Hong Kong. As they're two sort of study locations to get an idea of how these these different forest types or lack of forest in the terms of agriculture impacting these amphibians. Mm. 
And so we've got two study sites and we have how many species? We have five species. We have Tutafrinus melanostictus, otherwise known as a common Asian toad. And between Thailand and Hong Kong, that guy, or those guys, those toads exist in both of those. So that's one study species right there. Yeah. And they're looking at body condition and sex ratio in these toad populations. Shall we like tackle each of their kind of species and questions individually? So should we go? Oh, that's toads? not a bad way of doing it. That's yeah, how I've I kind of it, thought. About I, that's how I've got it split up. In fact, yeah, yeah me too. I've I've done it by by species group, so we can go from toads. Yeah beginning to end and then the next one beginning to end yeah suits me suits me yeah so yeah. now you've got three little stories mm. but i think before we talk about anything else we should talk about their thailand study site which i didn't realize was sakura to be scarab yeah i had no yeah. idea I didn't, neither did i <laughs> i didn't cotton on until i reached the first line of the methods and i was like oh it's yep. where ben lives <laughs> yeah so yeah that's just glorious to think that these little toads around me have been helped. and they've helped. been studied, yeah, <laughs> yeah, and it's cool as well because I've seen these species in that place as well, so I could really relate mm. to what they're talking about in this paper, which is really cool. I think all of the species they've seen in Thailand, I've seen at the research station, and you know, unsurprisingly, because they deliberately studied species which are perceived to be common and common. commensals that are yeah. happy to live alongside humans. So myself being a human, it's no surprise that I've bumped into <laughs> these animals because you know they're chillers, they love it, or so we think. Well. Mm, yes, that's exactly the point, do they? Yeah. And um, in Hong Kong, they studied, they were doing the study in the New Territories and Lama Island. And um, yeah, the same three types of land used in both intact secondary forest, degraded secondary forest and agricultural land, as you said. Mm. So the toads. Toads. Yeah. So they went, How were they doing? They went around catching toads. And so this is the um, common Asian toad, as Ben said. This this is the species which we've covered in the podcast before. The one which is um, ravaging Madagascar currently as an invasive species. Yes, episode episode thirty, I think it is mm. that we chat about that stuff. Yeah, um, um, and this species. I mean, what was I going to say? Just lost my train of thought. But they're glorious, beautiful animals. Um, they are. Really. They're a decent sized toads. They're usually quite tan, but can can go to like a darkish brown. They got these. Very distinct black markings on them. Yeah. Um, I think an alternative common name for them used in some places is a black-spined toad or something along those lines, mm. which I guess is where melano- uh, melanostictus comes from. Um, yeah. yeah. I love them to bits. I think they're charming. Yeah, I know you think they're charming. And like, if you were to ask me to describe how Ben would describe these toads, I would say he would say they're charming. <laughs> <laughs> They are, those faces. Oh. Yeah, they are cute. I mean, um, yeah, they've got character. And the way they stand up when you upset them slightly is hilarious as well. They just, like, their puff their little arms interned out. hands. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Um, so, yeah, they were basically catching these toads in each of the habitat types and looking to see how fat and healthy they were and how many males and females there were. So they were looking at sex mm. ratios. So um, in Thailand, they couldn't catch any real... They couldn't really catch any toads in agricultural land. Um but the toads in intact forests were generally 15% longer and 40% heavier than those in degraded forests. Um, and the same story was true in Hong Kong, where body condition was higher in both intact and degraded forests than in agricultural land. And 
What was interesting as well, so you've got fatter, healthier toads in less degraded land, but also um, there was a noticeable female biased sex ratio in the intact forests, which wasn't present in the more disturbed areas. Yes, and don't they go on to say that this is the sort of pattern which has been documented in other amphibian species, right? Yeah, yeah, so it tends... That that sort of slightly skewed ratio is what you're looking for in a healthier population. Yeah, which I don't really get. I mean, how does it end up that there's more females than males? Is predation on males Uh... higher in a healthy ecosystem? Maybe, but if that was the case, why? Yeah, I guess. Yeah, then it seems didn't it seems odd because the suggestion with the higher body condition is that there's more food available for them and they're they're doing better through things that they can build body mass, presumably. But at the same time, that might be a reduction in threats and things that they have to deal with in these environment so they can spend more of that energy on being healthy as opposed to constantly escaping uh, issues or dealing with stress maybe yeah yeah so i wonder if maybe um the the feet the the sex ratio is biased when they're when they emerge you know they're naturally there are more females than males but in disturbed yeah. environments fewer females survive because they need more food potentially yeah potentially I mean, it would make sense to have a naturally skewed sex ratio towards females yeah. for, a, for a species that, okay, explosive explosive breeder, um, the more females you have, the better that population will do in general, because you could have one male that... that mates with multiple females but you'd still get a larger population boom from that um yeah somewhere there's a there's a suggestion that having a higher male to female ratio i.e more males is worse for population uh genetic what's what's the right word what am i thinking of uh diversity it ends up slightly bottlenecking uh genetic diversity in a population Mm, okay that makes sense yeah because males so in that regard it might be skewed that way anyway because of the repercussions of it not being skewed well it's a bit of a mystery isn't it but i well for i mean for us it is i would presume that somebody actually knows the answer <laughs> yeah so if you really understand this female bias sex ratio why it's better or if it even is better um yeah, I'd be curious to know. Just... They do they do say that it's better, don't they? Don't yeah. Think. Shifts in sex ratio reduce the effective population size and can lead to inbreeding reduction in genetic diversity in populations over time. Ah, there we go. Okay. There we go. That's the key line. Additionally, male-skewed sex ratios in disturbed habitats have been associated with declining populations. So they don't explicitly say why um, it tends to go towards a male-heavy uh, bias in, in populations that are doing worse. But the repercussions of having that male skew have been studied and shown, okay, there's a genetic diversity problem if you have a male skewed uh, population. Uh-huh, yeah, that bit. But not, the mechanism that pushes it is a, isn't mentioned, but you presume it's something to do with uh, female toads requiring more resources, maybe. Yeah. Because they are larger, aren't they? 
Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah, so um, yeah, sex ratios reduce the effective population size. Okay. Yeah. I get it. Yeah. So you, what you said about males can breed with multiple females. Yeah. Yeah. And probably reduced resource demands. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. So more baby toads are going to come if there's more females. Essentially. Yep. Yeah. Okay. That's interesting. Yeah. But as they say, they don't really explain the mechanism, which is, they probably don't know the mechanism, which is leading to this change, which is really mysterious. Mm. I'd be really, I'd be really curious to know what, what it is that's actually causing the, the change. No, I don't know. I don't know. It could, it could be all sorts of things. It has to be sort of teased out, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. I'm sure it's not just one thing as well. Yeah. Anyway. We won't dwell on toad yeah. sex ratios any longer because I think it stumped us. Um <laughs> We'll go on to their second experiment, which was... Well, the, go on. the point is, with the toads, just to round it up, toads doing better in forests. Yes. Although the Dephrinus melanosticus is widely regarded as a generalist species that does fine in degraded habitats. There are plenty of um, little sort of comments with the in regard to the Madagascar, uh, Madagascar invasion of these guys that they're doing better in degraded habitats. What's interesting with this paper is, okay, yeah, they can survive, but maybe those are some pretty ragged invading toads. And part of part of me in the back of my mind is saying, hmm, that's a little bit of an issue, because if these guys break into forests where they're actually more likely to be healthier and do better, um, that could really spell... So this sort of second boom in toad populations in Madagascar if, if people can't keep them from breaking into these protected forested areas. Yeah, I often think that about invasive species. There's kind of, in many in many regards, there's kind of two, two sort of stages that a good invasive species has to overcome. The first one is finding yourself at a port, usually, and yep. um, being like, what do I do now? Uh, unless, you know, <laughs> you're a cane toad, in which case the Australian government had the... Uh, the decency to let you go pretty pretty much all over the place (laughs) yeah some nice fields but yeah usually you just rock up and you're at a port and you're just like well first of all i've got to get off a boat okay there's lots of sort of disturbed land around here i've got to try and make it here but then yeah there's then that second sort of frontier after they reach more wild areas which as you say could potentially lead to an explosion in these uh asian toads they can't make any inroads because there's no available niche and it's harder to displace a species that's already sort of got that niche on lockdown than coming in as a as a new guy and trying to push something out. Yeah. So how they interact with actual native species is going to be a big, probably a big deal. Yeah, that's true. That's one of the patterns that invasive species biologists try and look for is whether or not species there rich, are <laughs> species dense places are more easily or less easily invaded by yeah. other things um yeah so the second one was the second element of this paper was they did a study on microhylid frogs which as the name would suggest are teeny teeny tiny and um they were looking at the survival and growth of these leaf litter microhylid frogs and whether or not um tadpoles were growing better and surviving better between the different types of habitat so um yeah yeah set out some buckets right some nice tadpole filled buckets in different forest types and in the agriculture yeah basically little fake Um, ponds yeah just okay let's see how these 
how these guys do. How many are going to actually grow up and do well? Mm. How how are they going to survive? What's yeah? How sort of much predation pressure is there on Micro Hyla? Uh, and I'll tell you what's Marvel. cool. What I thought was cool about this Love is it. that I have seen those buckets dug into the ground in the forest in Sakurat Research Station. And I didn't know what they were for. Someone told me go. vaguely, oh, someone did some research on some frogs. I was like, cool. <laughs> but there... Someone did some research on some frogs. Yeah. Don't ask any questions. Yeah, yeah. No more questions. I was like, okay, sorry. But then, uh, yeah, as it turns out, this is exactly what they were for. So I was... Yeah, it's really come full circle for me. Um, it's, you know, it's <laughs> filled in one of the blanks, which I had kind of forgotten needed filling, but it was nice. Um but for those of the people that are interested in microhylid frogs, the Chinese species that they studied was Microhyla fissipes, and the Taiwan was Microhyla heimonzai, um, mm, which is a yeah. great name. It sounds like heimonzai. <laughs> Don't know what it means, <laughs> but uh, it's cool. Um, it's probably Heyman's microhylid. Don't ruin it. <laughs> it probably means something cool. Sorry. Uh, but yeah, so they were looking at survival, uh, first of all, and in both Thailand and uh, China... The survival was way higher in agriculture than in forest. Um, I say China is in Hong Kong, yeah. where in the forest, zero of their embryos survived, whereas 95% survived in degra- degraded forest and agricultural land. So these um, microhylophys... Night and day, really. Yeah, these microhylophysipes tadpoles were doing so much better in um, intact forest. Sorry, they were doing so much better in agricultural land than they were in intact forest. And um, Mm. the same story was true in Thailand to a slightly less extent, but they were doing noticeably better. Um, I can't remember what they said about the growth rates. I mean, did growth... Uh, Tadpole size was mirroring um, survival when it came to Thailand. And I think the size was was very much following yeah. survival. Yeah, in, they were in 50%, all cases, was yeah. it not? They were half the size in intact forest yeah. than they were in degraded or agricultural land in the. So a real tough time. Yeah, in the Chinese. Real ones tough as well. time. Yeah. So basically, what was bizarre is that these microhylid frogs were doing way better. The babies were just absolutely smashing it in agricultural land and the reason they they think is behind this is because this is a species which is actually adapted to breed in open areas of forest so likely after tree falls in the natural setting yeah which as you can appreciate a tree falling over is probably quite a rare occurrence in in the forest so that you know these guys have got to get pretty lucky to find a nice clearing where they can breed and reproduce where there's some little ponds and some nice sky for the babies to look at so, agriculture actually represents... <laughs> that's, that's what encourages them to actually grow more. Yeah. As soon as they get direct sunlight... Yeah, they're, they're blue sky thinkers. Dublin size. If they, yeah. they're born blow a canopy, they just don't want to know. Um, but yeah, so agriculture basically represents an ideal situation for them because it's open, there's water, you know, that means they can reproduce and they can survive. Certainly, um, I remember I mean, seeing this... A, a, pot- a potentially ideal... I mean, there's... Agriculture is never going to be perfect for these guys because there's all sorts of oh no weird yeah. and wonderful chemicals being sprayed and forced into waterways, which I'm sure is going to be playing some sort of role in how well these guys are doing. Yeah. So yes, they're doing well compared to actual dense canopy that they're probably ill-suited for, 
but yeah, could they still be doing better? Yeah, probably. Yeah, that's fair to say. <laughs> probably if they were just in, you know, an open forest, for, a forested area, but like an open, uh, open treefall area. Well, you'd hope so. Mm, yeah, but I mean, at least for the growth of the tadpoles, agriculture is fine. Um, and yes. yeah, I do remember seeing these. I mean, you probably still do, I would imagine, seeing these little frogs out and about. Um, quite common. I mean, I wasn't very good at IDing them, but I just looked. I looked up some photos earlier on, and I definitely saw that frog quite often. Which uh, which one are these guys? The absolutely tiny little guys. Yeah, um, like microhyla. Hey, couple monster. of centimeters. Yeah, and they're kind of like ready, ready brown. Yeah, yeah. With a funny little face. Pointy little face. <laughs> yeah, they're adorable. Yeah, yeah they, they are, are good. They are great. Actually, the thinking about it, the most place I see them is. Uh, when you're walking from building to building in amongst leaf litter, just... But then I suppose it's harder to see them if they were in a bush, so... Yeah. It's not really saying much, is it? <laughs> but they are there. So, uh, the leaf litter frogs seem to be doing better. At least their reproductive cycle is working well in agricultural land. But as you said, they're adapted to open areas, so it's not a big surprise. And, um, yeah closed canopy mm. forest probably is never going to be good for them so then there's our f- final species or species pair sorry yeah so our final pair is uh i would that's one of the cool things about this they managed to find i mean obviously the uh, asian common toad goes across both um hong kong and thailand but this the they managed to find pretty good paired species to look at um otherwise so in the yeah. Tree frog example, which is one we're just about to discuss. They had uh, Polypodates leucomastax in Thailand and they had Polypodates megacephalus in Hong Kong, which are pretty large tree frogs, really. Um, you know, striking. The leucomastax are like sort of big and pink. I remember seeing those and being very impressed. Um, and the point of this one was to look at how the frog eggs were faring in these um, artificial ponds that they were putting in across three habitat types again. So, um, And specifically with relation to them being consumed by invertebrates. Yeah, so there's these flies. These, these buckets are set up slightly different with a bit of... Some of them are completely... Uh, no, no, none of them are completely open, but some of them are completely covered, so invertebrates can't get through with a, with a mesh, but then others have a little bit of bit of a gap to allow invertebrates in these specifically flies to uh, get in and attack the eggs yeah or not yeah and so there's the option these flies are anyone who's interested in flies the genus is cayusa um cayusa something like that and um yeah they're, they're they're these fly larvae basically the flies come they lay their eggs um and the larvae come out and they eat the eggs of the frog they sort of lay the um, lay the eggs on the egg, lay the eggs on the eggs, and then the <laughs> one kind of egg hatches from the flies and eats the frog eggs, which is pretty grisly. Um, but yeah, they were Kausa kumani in Hong Kong and Kausa kumani and Kausa volacea in Thailand. Um, I googled them, thinking that there might be something you know novel about them that I could make light of, but they just look like flies. <laughs> I'm sure there's a beautiful subtle difference that. <laughs> We're just not up with, you know, standard flies. Yeah, yeah. No, they, you know, they. I mean, they have a cool life history. At least they, you know, they're they're larvae and they eat frog eggs. I mean, that's interesting. 
It is pretty cool, to be fair. Yeah. Yeah. And they uh, they have a bigger impact on these guys when they're in agriculture than when they're on in forest. Indeed, they do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, survival so. of the embryos to hatching when accessible to flies was. 36 to 38 percent lower in agricultural land than in intact and degraded yeah. forests in thailand a similar story in hong kong but slightly less intense yeah, yeah. 14 to 26 yeah so basically yeah. degraded land equals more flies eating the eggs and they had some interesting ideas about why that might be whether it's because there's less variety of prey for these um flies to feast upon because of the fact that they're less diverse That's possible. assemblage yep. of amphibian eggs being laid in agricultural land. Uh, they also suggested maybe um, there was higher densities of the flies um, for some other reason. Maybe their eggs are easier to find. There's a whole host of different reasons it could be. Or maybe you've lost some predators that eat the flies yes. in agricultural land. So then there's that knock-on effect of more flies and therefore less frogs or, or less frog eggs. Yeah. There's a lot, yeah. When you're dealing with community interactions, there's a lot of different permutations that can cause, uh, well, confusion, I guess. <laughs> yeah, for sure, for sure. And it, I mean, it's just the complexity of a, you know, the complexity An of the composition of an ecosystem. <laughs> yeah, like it's mental. Yeah. It's just my, that was, I was thinking about that. I had a moment where I was reading this paper and I was just like, you know, the the complexity of all the interactions in a food web suddenly struck me and it was just like, ah! <laughs> it fell off my chair. And it was perfectly distilled in this fly consuming a frog's egg. Yeah, literally. Just, yeah. yeah, it's bonkers. But, um, I think, I mean, you, you raise a good point though. That's one of the cool things about this paper is that it, because they've got multiple different species pairs and, you know, it's across two different um study sites that are, you know, they're a good distance apart. It does start getting you to think in a more broad concept sort of way. Yeah. And it's it's brought into very clear focus with quite detailed, small scale little interactions. Yeah. You know, flies versus frog eggs, but it actually speaks of a lot more going on. It speaks of anthropogenic landscapes harming all sorts of species because they're not adapted for those sort of landscapes mm. but not only is it harming them just okay their survival lower is giving you a little bit of insight into the mechanism that's driving that and how oh look agricultural landscapes may actually be benefiting some species could be benefiting the flies that might be one of the reasons for the reduced survival who knows yeah could be down to stress could be down to you know pollution could be down to all sorts but you start thinking about these interactions and there's there's more and more going on. Yeah. And just and it, oh it's just fascinating. Yeah. I love it. Just the fact that those you know, many of the patterns as well emerge in both examples. Yes. It does speak to this like sort of higher order where equal equilibrium in these different places you know, I mean, okay, they're not a million miles apart, but equilibrium in, in these different places looks similar. And if you change things in a similar way, you're gonna make similar changes to the way that animals interact with each other. That's yeah. sort of like whoa, okay. So there is like a there is a pattern, and you know these ecosystems are obviously potentially. I mean, not obviously, but at least in the microcosms that we're looking at, they are functioning in broadly similar ways, in such that yeah, similar changes, exact similar changes, which again, yeah, it really is fascinating. I think this study design yeah. for this paper is really quite incredible, the way they've tied it all together. 
it is very neat mm. it is very neat going from that tiny again it's connecting the scales it's going from something very small scale and detailed but tying it into something much larger and i think that really oh it's just exciting isn't it it is yeah it's cool yeah it's cool and so uh, <laughs> we're just having a little bit of a ooh, love it <laughs> um but yeah so i think we can probably get on to like overarching themes now and yes i, I think what they say in the paper is that as they expected when they started undertaking this study, there is evidence that in more disturbed habitats, amphibians are sort of suffering in subtle, maybe not suffering, but they're not performing as well. And it's in subtle ways like lower body condition, altered sex ratios and increased predation risk. So while on the surface, it would appear that these animals are doing well because, you know, you're tripping over them at night. If you walk through, you walk through the degraded forest down the road from you at night, you're going to find Asian spiny toads everywhere. Like they seem to be mm. doing well. And it takes that slightly closer inspection, you know, that keen eye and that examination of actually how well are they doing for you to realize that they're not doing well across the board. They are actually faring better in areas where humans have had less of an impact. And so therefore there is this risk that while they appear healthy, the populations might be eroding over time, which is a pretty bleak message really. And, and the other thing is, okay, they're widespread, but they're widespread across lots of degraded habitats. Therefore, you've got this little bit of suspicion that, okay, they are widespread, and that is cause for uh, deprioritizing them as a conservation concern. But if they are just losing condition and population throughout their entire range, it's quite hard to spot it when you're like, okay, we've just lost toads from this area, because it's could be happening across everywhere so yeah. it doesn't look like any particular place is doing bad it's just that's the way toads are yeah okay when you look at it this is where they should be doing good but if that's not doing <laughs> doing great but you've got nothing to compare it to because they're all not doing great but just subtly yeah. so you run the risk of they bring it up um explicitly in the paper this shifting baseline syndrome where you sort of forget what a healthy toad population really looks like because all you can see are degraded and unhealthy or you know populations declining but you've got nothing to compare it to and subtly slowly over time you just get used to that's just what toads look like they're a bit scruffy when really oh they should be lovely plump guys that are running around in the forest yeah yeah and i think one final thing to note is something which I found very interesting that they say in this paper, which kind of skews the way we think about what species, which species are important. So rare species, by virtue of the fact that they're not very common, don't necessarily play big roles. It's not to say they're not important, but they won't be playing big roles in things like nutrient cycling and you know being predators and being prey, just simply because there's more individuals of an animal in an environment. They are doing more as a species for that the management and for the kind of um, upkeep of that environment so you know if it's important for example that those predatory flies are being eaten by a type of frog if it's a common frog they're going to be having a huge impact on the population of those flies whereas if it's a rare frog they're only going to be sort of moderating the fly population in a, in a much more gentle way and so we do need to really realize that these common species because they're common are really important facets of the ecosystem and so they shouldn't be overlooked mm. well and it yeah i mean you start getting into really detailed things of okay why are you conserving species at that point shouldn't you be conserving 
functional yeah. or functional aspects of an ecosystem or interactions or something like that and thinking about ecosystems in a slightly different way rather than species as a conservation unit and mm. i mean that's a that's a whole nother discussion that's complex and then you start getting into the practicality of trying to justify these things and you know there's a lot of momentum behind doing it on a species by species basis but you know if it if it's not doing a good enough job for these widespread common species then maybe there needs to be a greater sort of diversity of uh funding that's not just geared towards these species on the edge yeah Mm-hmm. I yeah, I think it does raise that question really well, and they that wasn't yeah. my idea. They talk about that in the paper. Um, right. So overall, yeah, they're being impacted in ways we haven't necessarily well understood, and yes, um, that does lead us yeah, on. It's, it's you need more than just occurrence. You don't need to know. What, you need to know where these species exist. Yes, but you need to know how they're doing in those places too. Yeah, and I think if you're interested yeah. in doing any research like this, this is a good paper to read for like how it can go really well <laughs> and like yeah, get some because, ideas for study design. Yeah, I think it's it's not a bad place to start, for sure. Um, some of it, I think, should be more standardised so you can get some estimates of abundance and things like that a little bit more... Well, it would be easier to get estimates from uh, of abundance and things with a little bit more standardization. But in terms of how expensive this sort of thing is, not too bad. It's go out, catch some toads, measure them, okay? So obviously wages and things are involved in that. But traps are pretty cheap, there's a bunch of buckets, you know, some equipment to stop flies getting at eggs. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's, it's really nice that it's a relatively low-tech study done smartly with nice sort of wider scale implications yeah so on the subject of wider scale implications um our second paper is about toads again um but this time (laughs) this time (laughs) (laughs) now broadening it up to um Toads. Actually, we're narrowing down. We're lasering in, aren't we? Really, I don't know why. I yeah, we are. We're doing that was the, the worst opposite. segue in human history. Um, yeah. Sorry, just tried to force it. Uh, but yeah, we're talking about <laughs> Bufo Bufo in this paper. The progenitor toad. <laughs> okay, so second paper apologies in advance for these names which will be butchered and i do apologize but hopefully it'll be enough that if people are interested they can look them up and yeah so this is well they are they are absolutely written down in the show notes yeah so regardless of the paper could be found yeah so this is by bacconi uvegis verabellii uhegii and moritz in 2019, so again, another paper from this year, toads phenotypically adjust their chemical defences to anthropogenic habitat change, published in Scientific Reports. Yeah. So we've got, okay, toads and amphibians across Asia having to modify themselves or being modified by the environment to survive. And now we're jumping across the globe over to... Where's this study done? Somewhere in Europe, isn't it? Uh, it was in Hungary. Hungry. There we go. So we're gonna jump over to Hungary. Similar sort of situation. We've got a bunch of toads. Let's see how they're doing in natural, urban, and agricultural habitats. Yeah. 
exactly that. So um, I guess, again, the precursor to this paper is that humans are taking up loads of space. We've got agriculture covering 40% of the earth, 40% of the land on earth, and urban environments, 5%. So there's lots of animals which are being exposed to these environments. And this sometimes brings about changes in them over time. This can be over generations. For example, um, many bird species living in cities sing earlier in spring and sing for longer because cities hold heat and give the impression of an extended warm season, um, which might seem positive for the birds, but it could also seem negative for the birds because if they're just singing and singing like lunatics at the expense of doing important things like actually eating and mating, you know, it's just one of those. It's yeah. Cities are changing. And you've got things wildlife. like indus- industrial melanism, things like that. You've got pollutants, you've got stress, you've got noise. There's a there's a whole multitude of things that humans change in a landscape, moving it from natural to, to urban or heavily agriculture. Yeah, but you know what people haven't really looked at in that context? Um, toads. Toxicity. Toads. And how potent they are. Yes. So enter the toad. And as I said, it's Bufo Bufo, a.k.a. the common yeah. toad. Tell you, what's, tell you what's cool about toads, other than their toxicity. Well, actually, more because of their toxicity. Yeah. There's a there's a cool paper, um, Arbuckle et al. 2013, that was looking at uh, mustelids. That's it, just completely changing to mustelids. But the point of the paper was that mustelids that have some sort of chemical defense can occupy larger niches in the environment so if you've got a bit of a chemical defense you can maybe spend more time in riskier areas or use more diverse times of day because you know you're you've got a defense so you're sort of buffered against the worst of the night animals and the day animals i guess or night animals and you know predators either side you've got a bit more flexibility if you've got chemical defenses so Okay, translate that to toads. Toads, pretty potent chemical defences, so it's enabling them potentially to occupy more diverse habitats or niches than they were without the toxicity. Wow. Which is pretty neat. Yeah. I've never thought of niche size or, or breadth as a outcome for having chemical defences. That is bonkers, actually, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I guess you kind of, it's easy to underestimate the um, effectiveness of a chemical defence because we just scoff at it. Like, if a toad gets its gunk on me, I'll just wipe it off. Whereas, obviously, mm. <laughs> in the natural environment, it is pretty deadly. And, um, yeah, they talked about some interesting stuff in this paper with regards to toad toxicity. Um, people know what common toads look like, I would imagine. We just call them toads. They're like 10 centimetres long. They're warty. Um, they sort of grumpy. They've got a toad, toad-like face. Horizontal people. They've got little toad hands. Yeah, little toad hands. Uh, yeah. They make a noise sometimes. Um, and sometimes they don't make a noise. Mm, sometimes they stay quiet. They like living in little holes. Sometimes you'll see them like living in a drain pipe or something. It's quite cute. Uh, they like eating crawling invertebrates in the twilight hours, which actually sounds quite romantic. Um, <laughs> they Well, I suppose for a toad, it... It's just another day of the office, isn't it? Yeah, they also hibernate for long periods, five months of the year. Um, and if you wind one up and it gets angry at you, it'll stand up on its all four legs and try and headbutt you. Um, which is, mm. again, I mean, I think that must have something to do with their paratoid glands where the poison comes out. Which I think it's just, exactly that. Yeah, yeah, just behind, 
behind the head there um yeah these big fat glands that produce the toxins um they also what is it yeah so the the these toads they're they're, they're producing toxic steroids called bufadienolides which they store in their skin and in their paratoid glands so um i didn't realize because i'm i just didn't know but there's not just bufotoxins are included in the bufadienolides Analyze, but there's also bufogenins, which are yeah, buf- yeah. But what is it? Bufotoxins, like a collective term for toxins that come out of toads. Okay. But each toad and like the combination of toxins and the concentrations and how they're mixed and stuff like that can vary species to species, and it even varies within species from location to location. Right, as with snake venom, I suppose that shouldn't be a surprise. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's a it's a cocktail of similar sort of toxins, but none are identical, and it's all a sort of bit of a bit of a mix. Right. Yeah. And so, for the purpose of this paper, they've just called they've kind of split into two groups: bufogenins, which are smaller molecules with really strong cardiotoxic effects, so they'll mess up your heart, and um, bufotoxins more broadly. Uh, which are yeah. sort of less impactful, um, which will come into its own in importance, as you'll see. But it's also worth mentioning that some of these toxins aren't even meant for defence in the sort of traditional sense of predators, but they're meant for antimicrobial sort of things or, or against pathogens. So there's a lot of different functions going on with, with the toxins toads are producing. It's not just, I'm going to stop this dog from biting me. That's so cool. Yeah. Um. Yeah, and as you've alluded, kind of alluded to, exposure to pollution can change how much of these steroids is produced. And um, as we all know, humans create pollution. So yeah, the idea behind this study was that different habitat types with different human disturbance would ha- would yield toads with different amounts of bufotoxins and bufogenins. And also they thought they'd measure the size of the toxin-producing glands, the paratoids. So they're basically looking at changes in toxicity or paratoid size, which can be seen as a proxy for quantity of production. So are toads in different environments more or less toxic and are they producing more or less of their poisonous gunk? Yeah. Yeah, so quite similar to the previous paper, but looking at a slightly different aspect of toad life. Yeah. Um, so they went out grabbed some toads, got some toxin from the toads for a little swab. Gave them a little tickle on the old paratoid. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just squeezed them gently. Uh, but what's also neat is they grabbed, uh, did they grab eggs? I think they grabbed eggs. Yes, they did. From and they did a the common wild, garden experiment. And then they yeah. hand reared them. Because the idea is you want to separate whether the changes you're seeing in toxicity or uh, paratoid gland size are genetic so it's taken generations to reach that sort of difference or it's just that toads are adaptable and if you put a toad in a bad spot it's going to modify its physiology to best suit that basically by living in a i don't know a more stressful environment it just over time builds up higher toxicity and larger paratoid glands but you've got to try and separate off those two things because the drivers of those could be slightly different, and the time scale at which they occur will be, well, probably quite dramatically different. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, we, I can empathise with that for toads. You know, 
being in a stressful environment makes you more resilient. You've got to make tomorrow better than today. And if you're a toad, that might mean making more poisons in your paratoid gland to cope with yeah. the extra predators you keep encountering every day because humans have eviscerated the place you call home and now there's badgers, foxes, cats, dogs, squirrels everywhere. Maybe not squirrels, but they're coming at you. And the only thing you can do is make some more of that sweet, sweet poison juice. Yeah, you say not maybe not squirrels, but I bet you a squirrel would have a go at a toad if it was defenceless. A t- are squirrels carnivorous? Will they eat meat? Oh, mate, I reckon a squirrel would. I'm not sure, you a know. A grey squirrel? It would, it would go, oh. Maybe. I feel like they're just nut like, specialists. Oh, I don't know. I just, I, I wouldn't put it past any. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I just, I can, I can just see a squirrel eating a toad. I can just see that. I can imagine it. Maybe it's completely inaccurate, but <laughs> my imagination can see it. It's That's just, all I'm saying. There's just no way to know. But, um... Impossible. <laughs> Impossible to find out. Scholars maintain the diet of the Squirrels common grey squirrel. Of time. Yeah, most of the time. <laughs> and whether it was even ever known, that no one, you know. I doubt that even the squirrels know. No, they can't recall. Um, <laughs> I've been eating too many toads at Scotland. <laughs> so, uh, toxin adult mine. <laughs> so, uh, what did they find out? Basically, adults. Um, their paratoid glands were larger in animals that they caught in urban and agricultural habitats compared to toads from natural habitats. Whereas, in contrast, juveniles from agricultural habitats had smaller paratoids than juveniles from natural habitats. So that was kind of switched over. Um, Mm. And toadlets from urban habitats had a similar size paratoid gland as toadlets from natural habitats. So basically, what they found there is that when they're babies, the glands are smaller in agricultural habitats, so they're born with smaller glands, but by the time they're adults, they've got bigger glands than the adults from other areas. Which suggests yeah. that it's something that's happening to them as they grow up. So it's likely well, an environmental Potentially. Thing. Obviously, At yeah. At the same time, it could be a genetic change that only comes to fruition. When they become adults. Yeah. When they're adult, yeah. There so is it's that. a little bit difficult to tease that apart, but... Really, I think the general feeling in the paper was that it looked to be more a plastic, plasticity change than a genetic change. Yeah, which is pretty cool. Um, it does oh, it's fascinating. begin to yeah. suggest that, yeah, these toads are going to, you know, they work out that their lives are sucking and they decide they're going to do something about it. I, I don't know how much like it's a conscious effort um, it's a conscious effort yeah sure. it is yeah. No, yeah people talk about you know endocrine systems and feedback loops with chemicals I don't buy into all that <laughs> for me it's all about these toads appreciating the fact that life is going west and doing something about mm. it you know you squeeze really hard you can feel your paratoid glands starting to grow I thought you were going to say, if you squeeze a toad really hard, you can see in its eyes its willingness to develop more toxins. <laughs> you can see the hatred. Yeah. Um, but what was also uh, interesting is that the amount of um, bufodienolides, I'm saying that different every time, per unit dry mass of paratoid secretion was higher in adult toads from agricultural habitats, suggesting that not only are their paratoid glands larger, but they're also producing a more toxic secretion. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that really—that's that's pretty impressive, isn't it? To yeah. be—it's not like a one-off. Okay, it's just this one aspect of the toxin-producing system 
going into overdrive, it is. Yeah, these toads are committed. Yeah. To uh, having, or they, you know, their demand. There is a demand for higher toxicity. Now, what's driving that higher toxicity, or greater quantity of toxicity, is a little bit unclear. It's a mystery because, again, like we said before in the previous paper, when you get into something like this, it's hard to unpick the exact drivers because, okay, one case could be agricultural land has less cover potentially. So maybe it's a predator pressure thing. Mm. Maybe there are more corvids or herons, as they suggest, or toad-eating snakes. And they're saying, okay, maybe a higher predator presence is driving higher toxicity to try and mitigate that. Um, Or maybe not. Maybe it's something else. Maybe it's something to do with stress and just being in an environment where they're disturbed more. There's a lot more change and uh, more dynamic sort of... Just a more dynamic landscape. Could boost stress, therefore boost toxicity as a perhaps not the greatest response to that, but it's sort of inbuilt as that's what stress does to toads. Yeah, and they say in the paper that the building blocks of the toxins that they produce are similar or from the same source as um, stress chemicals like cortisol. So they're actually built of the same um, proteins. They protein? Are they proteins? Yeah. Um, Yeah. Yeah, and so it could be that... um, it's a byproduct of stress because they're more stressed. Therefore, more of these base proteins are being are required, and then that leads to an increase in the toxins. Where as well. are they going to go when they're done? Yeah, off into toxins. Yeah, yeah. but that's not. They haven't yeah. said that um, definitively. That's just one of their sort of theories. And the other thing is that um, the ponds, which were in heavily human-dominated environments, had more endocrine-disrupting chemicals, as we've kind of touched on earlier. Um, which could yeah, so pollutants directly impacting the the balance in the toad and the hormones in the toad. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. But again, the exact mechanism might, is unknown. might not be voluntary at all. That's it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it might just be that it's a byproduct of their upbringing. Um. Mm. So yeah, the uh, yeah, as you've said, it could be because of predators. Um. Yeah, like some some predators are more dense in agricultural habitats. Um, you know, I, th- I think about the UK. Uh, that's definitely, I mean, cats everywhere in urban environments. Um, yep. Corvids, herons. Uh, yeah, a whole bunch of different mammals do really well alongside, or at least we, they seem to be successful commensals. <laughs> do we really well, know? Well, and things like, things like rats are uh, resistant to toad toxins. So they'd, they'd be prime prime toad predator oh yeah yeah a cat i don't think would be that big a deal for a toad i mean it would kill a toad most likely i don't i mean it's not going to eat a toad same yeah. with a dog probably no a cat wouldn't get eat away a toad, with killing but it, it would, but it wouldn't it would go further. smash a toad it would it, it would love to smash a toad so yeah i mean the bottom line is because the difference in adults were not the same as the differences in juveniles with regards to their paratoid glands these hungarian toads seem to have be um, demonstrating phenotypic changes, i.e. they're not hardwired to have these differences between the populations. It's not in their genetics. It's actually a result of them changing over the course of their lifetime. They do, as you say, Ben, um, encourage exercising caution in that um, summation because it's not definite, like, it might be that their genetic changes, which only occur, which only make themselves known as they reach 
adulthood. So mm. much, much like if you measured babies for their beards and different habitat types, it would all appear that they were the same. <laughs> you wouldn't be doing. Oh, yes, habitat type has no impact on babies' beards. Yes, but habitat type yeah. may have an impact on an adult's beard or something. So yeah, you've... I, that is not a bad analogy i'll accept that. oh i'm glad because last time you were slating because it also conjures the images of bearded babies and that's quite amusing <laughs> bearded in babies are hilarious they? ridiculous imagine how you'd have to take a baby so much more seriously if it had a beard yeah yeah you would yeah really really command command your attention in a way that babies generally don't <laughs> um <laughs> i think that is a good well that's really. I suppose the final closing remark is, okay, we've got this this observed difference. Okay, it's a little bit woolly exactly why it's occurring, but the other bit that's requiring a little bit more study is how or is there an impact on survival and fitness? Because let's say you're spending more energy to produce more toxins, is that actually beneficial? Is that actually helping you survive, or is it some sort of ecological trap? where you've got all these things pushing you to produce more toxins, but it's not actually having that much of a benefit. It's just causing you to use more energy. And just to survive in these degraded landscapes is just more costly. And therefore, we sort of tie that up nicely to the previous paper is, yes, this is a common toad. Yes, it is widespread. How are these populations doing? Are they actually uh, adapting to urban and agricultural landscapes or are they just there but actually having a worse time of it regardless mm. of the plasticity and their adaptability yeah yeah so yeah toads toads still fascinating after all these years <laughs> <laughs> i would love to make some sort of joke about when toads emerged as a sort of group but I cannot remember, so I'm going to look it up and slow the whole podcast down. And there's a wonderful paper, Around the World in 10 Million Years, Biogeography of the Nearly Cosmopolitan True Toads. So, I mean, I guess they've been, they've been doing it for at least 10 million years. Surely, yeah, I mean, I can't imagine it's only 10 million. I feel like it should be more than that, but... Let's see if I can. Let's see if they quickly mention when they emerged. <laughs> the origin of Bufanids, uh, 105 million years ago. Wow, that sounds more like. Wow. A, yeah. 105 million years of toads. Every one of them, as good as the last. Every one. Every. It hasn't one. been a bad year for toads. Not if there's a toad involved. <laughs> and if it is a bad year, really, the issue wasn't that. There's nothing wrong with that year. It's just they needed more toads. Yeah. Yeah. In, in the right place. Yes. You know, the right toads in the right place. Yes. Just you know, put that out there. Yeah, you don't want the wrong toads in the wrong place. Uh, so let's move on to our brand new species of... You guessed it. No, it's not a toad, it's a frog. <laughs> but it's close and... Yeah, it's not it, sound, it has a toady voice. It does. This paper is by De Carvalho, Giretta, Angulo, Haddad, and Peloso, 2019. So a trio of uh, 2019 papers. A new Amazonian species of Adenomera. Oh, wasn't, the, wasn't the first one 2018? 
don't do that. Don't derail me like this, Ben. <laughs> yeah, I got it as 2018. Oh. So, I've got it as 2019. Oh, wait, no, yeah, we yeah, did the second. It's published in 2018. Oh, God, you're right. Submitted 2017. Oh. Sorry. A brace of 2019 papers. Um, <laughs> and this one is from a new... It's what did I? How far did I get? A new Amazonian species of Adenomera from the Brazilian state of Para. A toady tyrant voice in a frog. Published in American Museum Novitates. Novitates? Mm. Um, yes. Yes. Uh, so, we're in the family Leptodactylidae, which is great to say. That one really rolls off the tongue, actually. <laughs> um, and it's a neotropical genus of frogs, widespread in South America. Provided you're east of the Andes. They don't go west of the Andes. They're frogs. They're not climbing mountains. And uh, the fieldwork for this mm, was... And they're quite little. They are small. Fieldwork was undertaken mountain, in Para. A mountain for us... I mean, I can't even imagine what a mountain feels like for a frog this size. <sighs> ah, wow. That's one of those really deep existential questions that just sends me for a loop. We're just going to have to sit in a darkened room for a couple whoa, of hours. Whoa, whoa. <sighs> yeah, too much. Lie on the floor and try and make yourself as small as a tiny, tiny little toady-voiced frog. Wow. Yeah, that really... Too much. So, this new <laughs> species... This new species is the 19th in the genus. Um, the genus is Adenomera. And it was really recognised by its unique advertisement call... Um, it also mm. has antibrachial tubercles on the undersides of its forearms. Um, Naturally. Yeah. So if you see antibrachial tubercles, you know you've found this frog. Although not definitely, because <laughs> some of them do have antibrachial tubercles as well. Um, but it's a sure sign that it's one of a few. Uh, antibrachial tubercles are bumps on the forearms. <laughs> oh, lump. It's got lumpy arms. Yeah. Yeah, all right. Arm lumps. Um, yeah. <laughs> And now, well, I thought there's a really nice there's a really nice story behind the discovery of this frog, and that is when they heard its vocalizations for the first time, they actually thought it was a bird. They thought, mm. yeah, they thought it was um, a toady tyrant, which is a great name, and is called toady tyrant. So it's like toad ties into the episode perfectly. Well, isn't it? I mean, toady tyrant isn't like a thing. What is it? Because there's toadies and there's tyrants. So tyrants, tyridae, they're like flycatchers. And toadies are toadies. So when they say toady tyrant, I think it's a cross between a toady and a tyrant-esque voice. Oh, but they say... As opposed to a toady tyrant. They call them toady tyrants of the neotropical genus Hemitricus. Oh. So they are a kind of like bird. A, are you saying there's like a like one that's belongs to the tyrant family but looks like a toady i'm not sure mate you're the bird guy based on what you've just said i'm massively out of my depth with the birds <laughs> oh i'm looking this up because because i went okay I was, I was like okay well i know what a toady looks like but i wasn't sure what family it was and i was like i didn't think toadies were were, were tyrant flycatchers that didn't seem right the fact so the family it. is called tyrannidae Wow, that's cool. Oh, there are tyrant flycatchers, but they're not toadies, are they? They're called toady tyrants. The whole genus are called. Oh my something god, they're toady, toady tyrants. tyrants. Yeah. They are toady tyrants. So there's tyrants, there's toadies, and then there's toady tyrants. 
but they are in the tyrant family. All dolphins are whales, but not all whales are dolphins. Oh my gosh, this Venn diagram. Yeah, I was I was coming at this Venn diagram from the complete wrong angle. <laughs> and that's what's caused my confusion. Was I didn't realise there was a there was this crossover of Toady Tyrants. I mean, I have to confess I didn't either, so don't feel bad. Um but yeah, so basically well, there we go. they thought they, they these birds are well known for having very peculiar vocalizations which um are very trilled and unusual. I'm going to emulate the noise. It's like... You actually did quite a good impression of it. Oh, thanks, mate. Yeah. And so what does this nice-sounding frog look like? Oh, it looks really, really ugly. Mm, yeah, not worth it. It's hideous. No, that's not true. No, it's not... No, <laughs> it's lovely. It's a little, little brown frog... How big is he? Because I think isn't the holotype male? Yeah, all the photos are males as well in the um, paper. Presumably, yeah. they found them by the noise. Um, how big are they? What, about twenty millimeters. Two centimeters long. They're tiny. Little diddy little guys making their diddy little noise, and they're well, they're very very cute. They got little sort of pointed faces. They got nice red eyes. Well, sort of burnt brown eyes. Their flanks are nice and orangey with like an orangey eyebrow. Nice dappling with sort of darker black spots. Uh, Front legs are nice and warm and orange as well. Undersides sort of pale. Sort of frog frog pink, I suppose you'd call that. Yes, yes. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Frog pink. Yeah, you know frog pink. Of course. It's like um, when you get salmon and it's not actually coloured. Ah, looks like raw fish. Hmm. Frog pink. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the yeah. belly of that frog, just for anyone who's trying to imagine it, does not look like salmon. <laughs> no, but you can see where I'm going with raw fish color, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's pale. Um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, could could have just said that. Stuck in. Or a could have conjured images of raw <laughs> fish stuck to the belly of a frog. Uh, yeah, either way works. But um, yeah, the the cool room is very reminiscent of this toady tyrant, um, toady tyrant bird. And for that reason, they named well, they they gave the common name toady tyrant voiced nest building frog, which although long, it's a bit of a mouthful, does get in a lot of information, which is good. Um, so they've and called it's quite, it. It's actually quite catchy too. Toady tyrant voiced nest building frog. Yeah, it's not bad. And they've also given it, obviously, a scientific name. And the scientific name is um, Adenomera. And then the species epithet is Phonotrichus, which is a combination of Greek phono, which means sound or voice, and trichus, which means a small bird. Um, not a specific small bird, although these days apparently we give small... We give it to tyrant flycatchers. They're called trichus. So um, basically, it just means... The sound of a small bird. Yeah, so, and trickus sounds like you're being tricked into thinking you're hearing a small bird. Ooh, yeah, it's a trickus. So I, I like the sort of double double meaning of trickus there. Yeah, yeah, and I like that they've oh, referenced how similar they are. A little frog yeah. has tricked us. I don't think we've had one before where the species has been named after what it sounds like. Have we? Um, 
I don't think so either. I think I, I think remember. We've had some that have been visuals and some that have been because they got weird hands. Yeah. Uh, but no, I think this is the first one that's been named after a call. And it actually put... Which I think is is very appropriate because that's the way it was sort of, yeah. you know, no, revealed itself. It puts me in a bit of a pickle because um, I don't like naming things after things which already exist. Uh, yeah, I think it's so you don't like out. the trickers as much, do you? Well, I don't know because, you know... Um, Leopard tortoise, right? You're not going to see that tortoise and help IDing it because of the spots. Maybe you would. Maybe you would. Maybe you would. Maybe I don't have a point. But with this frog, you're gonna. It's going to help you identify it in the field because you'll be like, oh my goodness, that frog sounds like a tyrant flycatcher or whatever, a trichus, a bird. It sounds like a particular bird. It sounds like a hemitrichus. Yeah. Um. So it will help you ID it, and so I think I actually am okay with it. Well, I think it's also more okay because it's sort of saying it's it's not tyrant flycatcher frog. Hmm. It's voiced frog. And the phono in the name is saying it's got a voice like it. It's not it's not leopard gecko. Yeah. It's not toady frog. Although that would be quite amusing, toady tyrant frog. Hmm. Um the name is 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 giving a bit more it's it's only an aspect. Yeah. I think they could have so maybe said something more yeah. about the appearance. So perhaps it should have been Toady Tarrant Voice, Nest Building, Salmon Bellied Frog. <laughs> yeah, but then you've got salmon in there. Oh, God, no. But... Salmon. Ah! That's you're into your coral problem. Oh, if it's not, you can see if how it's easily... in the water, it's fair game. Oh, God. All right. Well, regardless, it's a really cool species and it's new based on morphology, uh, mitochondrial DNA, and it's cool. Um, yeah. It seems to like forest and forest edges. Um, there's a suggestion its population may be declining. But, um, yeah. Just all around a cool frog and a cool that they, you know, we got access to the cool. Yeah. I love that. I think that's awesome. Yeah. So that's our species of the bye week. Yeah, a neat little, funny sounding, bird sounding frog. Yeah, which fits into the toady episode because toady is sounds similar to toad. Mm. That's that's the segue we're allowed it. Yeah, no complaints that it wasn't a, a legitimate true toad. <laughs> so I've got some other business. Oh, yeah? Yeah, so our um, previous episode on the um, underwater behaviours of lizards. We got everything hideous, hideously wrong. No, and they no, were actually no. running along sand and not water no, at all. No, no, we didn't... Well, we probably did get something wrong, but no one's told us. But no, we had a load of people on Twitter getting in touch with us. Basically, it just caused a, a bit of a stir. Everyone's really loving this underwater lizard thing. Just because it's awesome. <laughs> yeah, we sent. We had a really cool link sent to us by Dr. Levy Gray on Twitter, Levi Gray, um, about Mexican alligator lizards of the genus Mesaspis um swimming around underwater taking refuge and things like that which was cool which i will post into the show notes breathing underwater too or just swimming and having some cool aquatic behavior Mm. i say just but actually that's neat by itself no they kind of like were running on top of the water and running around when they were babies the little baby lizards were the little baby alligator lizards um and then they were swimming underwater to hide underwater um, and they, he did. They were doing this because, um, well, they're not sure why, but they just were. 
but it was cool. They were diving <laughs> to the bottom of the pool, hiding around, hiding among the plants, and just being generally sort of aquatic in their behaviours. Um, Sneaky aquatic lizards. Nice. Yeah. And what else was there? Yeah, so thanks, uh, Dr. Gray, for that. Uh, I also had another post from Geordie Jansen on Twitter. Um, I think it's Dr. Geordie Jansen too. Uh, search, he, he recommended that we search for Oligosoma suteri, which can stay underwater for 20 minutes, eating crustaceans among rotting seaweed. Um, um, sorry, what? Yeah. What? Yeah. So this um, oligosoma. So there's a there's a magic lizard. Yeah, which is like a skink from New Zealand, um, and as it turns out, uh, Doctor Jensen does research on these lizards and how they can excrete salt, um, and he did share a link with us, and it's very very cool. But so you could keep one on your table. Squeeze, squeeze it. Squeeze it out onto your chips. Yeah. And I think we should actually return. Basically, I think rather than doing talking about it too much now, I think we should return to it as a topic because oh, I'm game. there's papers. Yep. Yeah. And so I won't go into it in too much detail. Suffice to say, thank you for telling us about that. Yeah, it's a shameless self-plug, but, you know, we're all about that anyway. Um, <laughs> <laughs> he did address that fact. So, yeah. But, um, nah. Like, I, got no pro- I, I got no problem with this. No. It's... it's if there's cool research if, yeah. to be done, if, there's cool research. If you're telling us about, about cool research, yeah, we're like yeah. fully on board. And certainly, ter- seemingly terrestrial lizards swimming around underwater and eating, excreting salt, and they're not iguanas in the Galapagos. Like, yes, that's super cool and deserves our attention. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And anything that makes skinks elevate skinks to their rightful position, I'm all aboard for. Yeah, hundred percent. I feel like I feel like they're underdogs when it comes to lizards. But there's so many of them. Well, exactly, and then people get tired because they can't work out what skink it is because it looks like that skink, yeah. and there's another skink over there, yeah. and it looks the same as the first skink. Some, you know, it, it, you can get skink tired quite easily because of their diversity in numbers. You can. All that remains to be said, really, then, is if you want to get in touch with us, you can. Herphighlights at gmail.com. We're on facebook.com slash herphighlights. We tweet at herphighlights. And, um, yeah, any corrections, if we've made any mistakes... Um, let us know and we will address them in the next episode thanks very much for listening Mm, thank you for listening just uh, record your system audio or something okay spaceman how do I do that send me the link and I'll sort it for you (laughs) Ha 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 ha.